You are listening to Intergenerational Politics with Jill Wine-Banks and Victor Shi, where we host weekly political discussions that are engaging and relevant to all generations with experts on various issues facing our country today. This is Victor Shi. I'm going to be an incoming freshman at UCLA, and I'm also the youngest Joe Biden delegate here in Illinois. Jill, can you give our audience a brief introduction about who you are? Sure. I'm not the youngest uh, Biden delegate, but I am a Biden delegate. I am also the author of The Watergate Girl, which I hope you will all read, and a former Watergate prosecutor, former general counsel of the Army, former COO of the American Bar Association, um, have been involved in um, sexual assault through the military uh, on a committee that I looked at, and many other topics. And I am now the proud co-host with Victor of this podcast. So uh, I'm really looking forward to our guest today. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing what is really happening from people who are on the ground, but who are also experts and political activists and government officials and party officials. So let's get started, Victor. Yeah, so I mean, as always, we want to thank you for listening to Intergenerational Politics. Last week, we discussed the recent disturbing events involving federal agents on the streets of Portland with a former um, Department of Homeland Security Assistant Secretary of Intergovernmental Affairs, Juliet Kayam. And um, today we're joined by uh, Joel Barker and Sharon uh, uh, Marin, um, who are two residents of Portland and have been part of the protests there. Um, Sharon is a county commissioner and Joel is the head of communications of the Multnomah County Democratic Party. Um, with these protests for Black Lives Matter and racial justice occurring throughout the nation, as well as um, the president sending these unidentifiable troops into Portland and other cities, um, we are truly so grateful to have you both onto the so sh- show. So um, thank you so much for being here and taking some time out of your day. You bet. Thank okay. you. Yeah, so um, to get this conversation started, can you both kind of tell us um, what made you go onto the streets to demand um, this fight for racial justice and equality? So I guess we can start with Sharon, and then um, if Joel wants to uh, add on to um, Sharon's answer, we can go from there. Yeah, um, thank you. So I am involved in uh, various forms of advocacy. I'm now a local elected official but there is something um, particularly powerful uh, about going onto the streets to protest in person and raise one's voice and stand in solidarity with with others um, to express the views that you believe in. Um, It's why it's so so important. It's protected under the First Amendment of the Constitution. And uh, initially when George Floyd was murdered it was um, the the outrage, uh, and I it felt uncontainable. And there was such a moment, um, which has become a movement, to go out and stand up for racial justice. Yeah. Yeah, Sharon, um, it's funny you should say that you uh, are called to do that because up until recently. Um, marching was one of my least favorite forms of social activism. It is so important and showing up for that, but um, but it's just not, it, it's very draining for me. So I have to like get my energy up. You know, it's, it's eating your brain on an activist level for me. And so after uh, the death of George Floyd, it activated 
um, my own evolution as an anti-racist and and I had to do this thing that was my one of my least favorite activist things. <laughs> I will make yeah. phone calls, I will knock on doors. Marching is just not my favorite thing, but I was doing it. And, uh, and then the galvanizing effect of the federal officers made it not even a choice. Uh, it, exactly. It's what we're going to do. Yeah, and I mean, I've always, um, so I, I talk with Jill often, and she, what she always tells me is, you know, um, how crucial back in the day during the 60s when um, people were taking to the streets to protest some of the Watergate, um, what's, what was occurring with Watergate and also the Vietnam War protests, um, and how crucial that was to bring about change. And for my generation, I think there's this similar hunger to dramatically change our country um, after, you know, the devastating killing of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and other Black lives. So, um, Tell me why, so let's start with Sharon. Tell me why you um, believe it's so important to go onto the streets and why that's, I guess, an effective way, in your opinion, to achieve um, transformational change. And then if Joel um, next wants to add anything, um, you can. Well, I, I think it goes a little to what, exactly what you said. Um, when we look at moments uh, in our history where there has been that kind of transformational change, uh, it has um, been when people have uh, really taken to the streets uh, to demonstrate. And uh, there are some, you know, really uh, effective and important approaches uh, through, you know, legislatively and, um, you know, voting. You know, obviously voting is so crucial, uh, but sometimes you need to throw a bit of a monkey wrench into the system. And uh, the only way to do that is by some sort of disruption of that system. And that's what protest is. Um, you're standing out there uh, gathering um, to, for, for whatever the cause is in solidarity with so many other people and you can't help but take notice. It's a different kind of a catalyst, I think. I think it also is something that energizes everybody who participates. Um, you know, so. I go back to the 60s and the civil rights movement where I was an activist and then to the 70s and anti-Vietnam protests. And of course I was the beneficiary of people taking to the streets and also sending in mail in a day before electronics where people actually, we were getting huge sacks, I mean, these big canvas mail sacks of mail, and the White House was too, and it made a difference. I saw the change that happened from public protest. But you're both in a way, um, you know, very uh, in, in a position as officials. I wanna hear what else you think besides protests might help us make the kind of change that is called for by this movement, the kind of police reform? Do we need legislation? Do we need lobbying? What besides protests do you think? So let's start this time with Joel and then Sharon. Well, um, I, uh, you know, the party has been working on this, the, the Multnomah County Democratic Party has been working on this extensively for a long time and, um, and we've passed several resolutions and actually I know the county commission has considered and I believe perhaps passed the uh, 
a resolution on um, on racism as a public health threat. Yeah. Oh, um, and and those fundamental conversations, um, I believe, uh, can guide policy. Like Sharon knows, and you've certainly seen Jill that like policy happens in very boring rooms sometimes and has these dramatic effects <laughs> a long time later. And yeah. I'm learning from what Sharon was talking about how there's two effects of the marching. And one is to take people who have a belief and make them not feel alone and they're mm -hmm. together. And I see that happen when I go down and people that I know who are not normally activists are like, are you coming down tonight? I just ordered a respirator and they're coming down. Yep. And so the feeling of isolation opens up into a feeling of togetherness. And then they take that back and that's their votes and they're showing up for meetings and the letters that you're talking about. And those things are gonna guide, uh, you know, Sharon's votes and they're gonna make, uh, I think more intelligence than anything that I could possibly say. Um, there's immediate things, chokeholds, tear gas, like let's, let's fix those things. But I really wanna see that rethinking of the underpinnings of what we think of as justice and what we think of as fair. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that, um, at least for me, when I when I kind of saw the images of, um, you know, right after Donald Trump got elected, I think we all remember um, the Me Too movement kind of um, coming into fruition and all these women coming together to um, protest um, women's equality and women's reproductive rights. Um, and then we have um, this protest. And I think that the striking image of um, these large these large gatherings and people just demanding action. I think um, we've definitely seen that in the short term with um, many of these policies that have been enacted um, throughout the country. And so I think many in my generation um, took to the streets and are calling for um, change because um, I think it's just the way that um, police have you know treated African Americans for so long. And um, what's been happening in Oregon and across the country um, has also um, kind of raised the debate of whether or not we should get rid of the Department of Homeland Security. So um, you know we've seen a truly horrifying scene of federal officers storming into cities and grabbing you know peaceful protesters off the streets and putting them into unmarked vans and with no apparent probable cause. Um, you both have seen what it has been like in um, protests firsthand. So I guess, um, what's your opinion of some of the press coverage and analysis that's been out there? Um, I guess we can start with sharing this time and then go to Joel. Yeah, I, um, I, I guess I um, think about, I have a couple of different responses to that. Uh, one is that I really appreciate the kind of press coverage that's out there because it does call attention to what is happening. Uh, you can't avoid it at this point. Uh, and so that's extremely important. But I do think that uh, there's a lot that gets lost in the translation and uh, the press can tend to veer in the way that is the most sort of sensationalist about whatever is happening. And like a lot of what's happening now uh, that we've seen in, that I've seen in Portland is uh, first of all, a mischaracterization of even the extent of what this is. I mean, from looking at the news, from what I hear about my relatives across the country and even in other countries, um, they're, they're texting and calling and saying, are you okay if Portland's in a, you know, Portland is a war zone. And um, that is actually inaccurate. Um, there is a very, very small discrete area downtown that um, 
is where these protests happen uh, on a nightly basis. During the day, they're fine as well. And Portland is very peaceful. You can go pretty much anywhere in Portland and it will be the peaceful sort of whatever the normal is these days. But, um, and, and so that's an inaccurate representation. And also losing sight of what the focus is for the protest to begin with. And that was the, um, the uh, structural racism inherent in our systems and that has been uh, in our systems for centuries and particularly uh, though the police violence against black men, um, others as well, but particularly black men uh, that needs to be disrupted. But now it's sort of, you see a lot of things going to um, the wall of moms or the, you know, this thing or that thing. And, um, and I think it really is uh, great to have the attention, but we need to bring back the focus to yeah. what this is really about. Although it seems like the focus has changed in part because of the presence of federal troops. Yes. Uh, you know, we're seeing videos of journalists and ordinary citizens being beaten and tear gassed, yeah. and it's all by the federal officers, not by your local police. And then we've seen the numbers rise. I mean, it looks like thousands of wall of moms, dads, vets are now joining in with peaceful protesters. Um, and so I'm not seeing the rioters or the anarchists that Barr in his testimony today uh, talked about and that a video was put together of violent protests. Um, but what we wanna get to is you've both been there. And I, I don't know if either of you has had a personal experience with a, a confrontation directly with federal troops, but surely you have witnessed or talked to other people in the crowd who have. Um, and I would really love to hear both of you, uh, and we can start with Joel this time, what specific acts of violence have you seen? Uh, let's just start with that and then we'll go on to some more details. I have seen no no violence, uh, and and that is partially because I go home relatively early to take care of my work for the my volunteer work for the party. Um, but but I um, to 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 repeat or to underline what Sharon said two nights ago. I recorded a Facebook live at like ten o'clock at night, uh, two blocks from the protest, and you can hear nothing and everything is peaceful. The thing that disturbed me was the sprinklers that turned on while I was recording it. Um, so Portland is completely orderly. You can go get a cup of coffee right next to that. And, and it's disturbing that the reporting um, focuses in on these things. And like Sharon, I'm appreciative of the attention and the conversation. Unlike Sharon, I haven't been in the news a lot. So this is the first time that I've witnessed the difficulty that journalists have, even if they're sincerely trying, to accurately capture the experience that we're having. Yeah. But the, there, there is undoubtedly in thousands of people, there are a few people who are going to be unruly. If you have a concert with thousands of people, if you don't cite a few of them, that would be very weird, right? Um, and so that certainly happens. Plus you have the provocation of federal officers who are dressed for war, who have now put uh, these increasingly complex and imposing fences 
in our street and in our bike lane. And if you mess with a Portlander's bike lane, you are in trouble. <laughs> yeah. We are actually fining them daily for that. It really? Turns out. Wow. Yeah, the Peabot yeah. is fining the feds for blocking the bike lane. Oh my um, God, serious about that, yeah. Yeah, um, and, and so the, the focus on violence that you are helping to have happen here because you're asking about whether it's happening is a success for the Trump administration that you are derailing, and I'm, not, I'm sorry to point my finger at you, but like this conversation is derailing us from what Sharon and I are galvanized to do, which is to look at structural racism and change that story. And one of the parts about this that frustrates me so much is that it's working. Barr and Trump are succeeding. They say violent anarchists, violent anarchists. And I have to say, I am not a violent anarchist. So I've succeeded in saying violent anarchist. That's just not the conversation. We're talking about thousands of people who come down, protest peacefully, and will not change their belief that systemic racism has to be improved for them to be comfortable living in this city. And that's gonna happen in politics and it's gonna happen on the streets. And the fact that there is some violence is that, that perhaps could be pointed to uh, you know, something uh, that, that one of the protesters is doing, that's after the police forces have fired a less lethal, I would not say less than lethal, a less lethal round into the forehead of a man who was holding a speaker above his head 30 feet from them. So Joel, before we go on, because we are going to get to the policy reform and the systemic racism that is an important part of our discussion today, but you said you hadn't seen violence from the protesters. Have you seen violence from the federal uh, agents who are on site there dressed in camouflage? Yes, like I said, randomly firing into crowds. I mean, they, they usually now use their loudspeaker to warn it, warn, warning <laughs> uh, that they're going to do that, but uh, they'll randomly fire pepper balls and um, other weaponry into the crowd. And when they throw uh, tear gas, they throw it into the center of the uh, group frequently. They're not trying to hurt people, they're disrupting people. So basically troubling. you're saying it's the protesters are generally peaceful and it's been exacerbated yeah. by the presence of the federal troops. But so Sharon, have you seen any specific acts of violence either by protesters or by the, uh, let's call them the opportunists who are showing up um, that aren't part of the protest or by the federal troops that are um, on site now? Yeah. Well, um, I have not uh, seen any act of violence, of direct violence of any kind by any protesters, and I have been in the thick of it, and I have stayed um, till pretty late in the night. Uh, what I have witnessed is um, from the protest side, um, there's sometimes like a very, very small, like of thousands of protesters, you know, a, a very small um, disruptive group that is doing nothing physically violent, but is, you know, banging on property and um, and doing that kind of disruption. Uh, but when I observed that um, the first time, I've now been uh, tear gassed four times. Ooh. And I just can't even, I mean, who would ever have, I, I just, it, it still shocks me to actually say that I have been tear gassed. Um, but the first, the first time was really um, the most, 
uh, shocking and uh, and what it was is I was in the very front line. I was right in front of the federal courthouse um, and had been protesting. At this point, people started milling around and were, you know, no one was doing anything, maybe a sporadic chant or something, kind of went onto the street. And then separate in time from any of the, you know, the big, large protesting stuff, a um, line of these federal troops came out in camouflage in its paramilitary type force and just indiscriminately threw out tears, uh, uh, canisters of tear gas without regard for who they were, you know, potentially harming without regard, you know, hundreds of people were impacted. And initially I was on the street and I was able to kind of run away, but I came back to, um, you know, to help and to see what was happening and at that point, they and there were so many people, vulnerable people, deeply impacted. And at that point, they threw out more, again, without warning or any provocation that I witnessed. And, and then it hit me at that time, and it was excruciatingly uh, painful, a, a horrible, horrible experience. But um, what you said um, really is, is exactly on point. Uh, there had been protests. Portland has a long history of peaceful protests and civic engagement. That is what we do. Um, and things were okay with that. We were, we were working through our issues and talking about the racism. And then suddenly, this, as things are actually getting better, this federal force comes in and it escalated things just to a scale that I would never have been able to imagine. That's when we see tear gas. That's when we see these projectiles. That's when we're seeing the pepper spray and the, it, it's, it's really horrifying. And, and so I did witness a number of episodes. I didn't see projectiles personally, personally but um, saw a lot of people really harmed. So the, the claimed grounds for sending the troops there, uh, and I'm using the word troops, they aren't military, they yeah. look military, yeah. so it's they easy to like say them. troops, but yes. they're federal agents, um, yes. many of whom we are told are not trained in crowd control. Um, but the, Donald Trump has said that the reason they're there, and William Barr has said the reason they're there, is that it's necessary for law and order and to protect the federal building. Um, at least that's what they said at first. And I, I just want to point out so that our audience knows for sure, uh, both as a federal and a state prosecutor, there is a proper role for the federal government to defend the federal building and the federal personnel who work there. And oftentimes the cooperation between the federal and state uh, law enforcement people is very helpful and beneficial to both sides. And very often the federal uh, laws are more appropriate for certain types of crimes like gun trafficking, for example. And so their help is welcome in a joint task force where they're invited by local authorities. Um, but now they've expanded the sort of claimed rationale to say that the federal agents can be there to generally protect the city against violence and crime. Uh, and of course, when they talk about cities, they have specifically said 
democratic run cities. Uh, the Portland mayor and many other mayors have said, we don't want the federal officials here, that they're making it worse, they're not properly trained, and the Constitution gives local governments the authority to protect its citizens. Um, so you now have the situation of people who look military, who are not trained in crown control, and to the extent that there's a legitimate reason for them to protect the federal building, do you know if there's been any thought given to moving the um, protests away from the federal building, which would take away any patina of legitimacy for federal agents to be involved? Because um, as you said, it's adding fuel to the fire and making things worse. So is, is there any chance that you would consider, not you, I know you're not organizing it, but uh, you're in positions where you might know whether the organizers have thought about moving the protest? Um, so Sharon or Joel, whoever wants to answer, go first, um, and we'll get you I, both in. Um, this, this is actually a generational question, Jill, because for two reasons. One, you are the third baby boomer who has suggested that to me in three days. Um, and and I, I don't say that in, I, I say that out of interest. Like, and and this, when the second one did it, I was like, how interesting, like I hadn't thought of that. Um, but this, this movement is a POC-led, youth-led group. And as a 45-year-old Gen Xer, I am fascinated at what they can do with Instagram to get thousands of people to convene. So the method of organization is totally beyond me. <laughs> so <laughs> I can't actually tell you how that would do, happen, but it's very possible that they could make that happen. But this is a Black-led movement, and I will do what they find to be the most important thing to do. No, that's why I'm asking if you know if any of the leaders of the protest are considering, since it's getting worse with the federal agents there, if you could, you know, if they chose to move it, might that make things a little better and get the conversation back to what we want to talk about, which is what are the kind of police reforms that we need? What are the social changes? What are the societal changes that we need to bring about equal justice and equality for all people in our society? Um, you know, I've been fighting that since the 60s. Yes. And I can't believe, you know, and, and, and we can reflect on the uh, untimely passing of Congressman Lewis. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we just need to Think about how can we get the message out and have the conversation focus, as you've been suggesting, on racial justice and police reform. So, I, I mean, that is, uh, that really is the key question right now. And, um, and uh, I concur with everything that um, actually that Joel had mentioned and would add that you know these these protests really have come together organically and it's my understanding that there are several groups and individuals that are in various you know quote leadership positions uh and but there there isn't 
like any specific leader. Like there aren't people that if you spoke to this person, they would be speaking for X or right. Y or Z. And so it, it does make it, it's a different kind of a challenge um, than I think this sort of situation might've um, might been in the past. And uh, so, but what is the representation that makes the federal building the locale for the protests as opposed to the mayor's office? I saw a video of his being criticized as not being progressive enough. Um, or what about the, wherever the police commander is? Because we're talking about, I mean, the original impetus for this was the killing of George Floyd and right. police brutality. Uh, unnecessary force. Um, so if your target is complaining about systemic racism, um, why is the federal building the, the proper locale for that protest? Um, I, you know, it's just a thought, you know, because we want to be talking about what does Portland need to do to achieve racial justice? What, you know, what are the top two or three things that each of you would suggest that Portland do right now to really bring about the kind of change that we need? Uh, listen to black people would be a good start, I think. Um, and that's happening. And, and that's one of the things that's really interesting about the way these are organized is that, you know, we're, we're, we're listening to what black people are, are telling us to do. Um, I mean, and Sharon is right that it's a large group. I think one of the, this is one of the things that the, um, I have to back up a little bit um, to say that there have been uh, conflicts between the Portland police and people during this post-George Floyd era um, on a pretty nightly basis up to when the federal officers came here. But the press then was failing to understand that every day at 6 p.m. at a lovely park, thousands of uh, Portlanders gathered listened to black speakers, and then we marched to different parts of the city. Mm -hmm. We blocked the interstate with our bodies. We were on the cover of the New York Times kneeling on a bridge. We, uh, we showed the city, once again, that idea of galvanizing your personal feelings with everybody else. And that would be over at like nine or 10 o'clock at night. Yep. No incidences with police. And then at one o'clock in the morning, there would be violence. It would be a different group of people entirely. And that was still all over the city. That building has been spray painted probably once every four years for the last, since it was built. Like, really? you know, it's, it's where you go when you're angry <laughs> to spray paint. I ran the 2011 uh, Portland Marathon, and that was where, this is a great Portland story. That was where the finish for the marathon was supposed to happen, and it was being occupied by uh, by a bunch of protesters. The Portland Marathon people <laughs> negotiated with the protesters. The protesters made space and then helped clean up litter after the run and then reoccupied the space. So once again, our tradition of protesting is, is integrated in the city and it always has been. So when the federal officers came, the, and I don't even know if they're still, if Rose City Justice is still doing their marches on the east side, but now everybody is focused on this one place because we're all pretty universally offended by two things, the damage to black lives 
and federal offers and officers interfering with our experience. Sorry, that was a long answer. No, that's that was a good answer. And Sharon, um, as an elected official, um, are you or your commission taking any action, proposing any changes, any rules, any regulations, any uh, legislation? Oh, yeah. yeah. So I mean, there's. Uh, we were going through our budget process as um, as sort of this was all evolving and um, and so there was a lot that was happening um, that you know there's what what we can do in the short term and then what we can do in the long term and uh, in the short term there were some we divested from a jail dorm so we closed a, an entire jail dorm uh, we, you know, and that's our, what we have is in our part of the criminal justice system is we um, uh, said do the budgets for the um, DA's office. Uh, so prosecution of crimes and then um, our jails and Department of Community Justice. So uh, we um, have been doing this work to divest from um, public safety and reinvesting in people, especially people of color who have been harmed by institutionalized racism for generations. Uh, that is the work that we do at the county. Uh, and so we've been working on this for a while, but um, with the protests, we're like, we're gonna close a jail dorm. Uh, we also, and, and move those resources to investing upstream into, into services. Um, we also, uh, we um, decreased staff for booking functions in the jail. We cut staff from the district attorney's misdemeanor unit. So there, those are kind of budget things we were able to do in the moment. Uh, we are also engaged. There um, was a group of leaders from a number of uh, black community-based organizations who uh, convened a group of legislators, uh, a group of elected officials at all different levels from the governor and our, um, our federal uh, congressional delegation to our state legislators to county and city officials to really go through, you know, action items. Okay, what can we do? What will you commit to doing? What can you commit to doing? Uh, which was really helpful because to have all those um, groups aligned uh, and on the same page was uh, was really good. And we knew what each other were kind of doing, which we usually often don't, <laughs> may not, uh, I'm not gonna uh, strike that. Um, no, that, that sometimes we don't. And uh, this allows for real alignment and knowing where resources are needed. Um, and so we've also set aside, you know, we are, uh, doing a number of other things uh, like cutting the exploitative and extractive fees we charge adults who are serving parole and probation in the community. Most, the majority of whom are represented uh, by people of color. And we're putting capacity in a range of proven educational and healthcare programs. So we are deeply engaged in and committed to that work with the leadership of our black community um, to be able to make those investments. So that's, that's what we're doing. That is a very impressive list. It yeah. is a model, I think, for many cities. And before I turn it over to um, Victor again, I, 
I guess one last question on that, which is as a Chicagoan who faces the um, statement of Donald Trump that he's sending troops here, um, and, although our mayor has supposedly worked out an arrangement where it will be for joint task forces, which if that's true is fine, if they don't have mission creep, where they start roaming the streets and pulling people off who are, you know, where there's no probable cause. But I'm, I'm just wondering if you have any, you know, other advice besides following your model of actions that can be helpful immediately. Is there anything else that you would advise my city and all the other cities where federal agents may be sent by the current administration? Just know that it will happen. Uh, there probably will be scope creep. Uh, it's a good description of it. And, um, and be prepared. Uh, talk to each other now so that you can um, have some consensus, hopefully, about what to do in, in particular situations. And absolutely uh, engage um, if you have any um, you know, community leaders that are uh, able to be part of these conversations that you can um, bring together and say, how do you want to approach this? And ask for that advice um, before proactively, uh, that, would be, that would be great. Yeah. And, and we are you. very fortunate. I do have to say in um, Multnomah County and in Portland, the one thing we do have, I'm going to give a shout out to my county commission because uh, we are um, five women. We are uh, a majority minority uh, board for the first time ever. And we are just very aligned in our values. And so um, it's, it's quite remarkable. And I, you know, I sometimes have to pinch myself and be like, is this, is this real? Like these other incredible women that I'm working with that, that we really do work together towards, um, towards these types of approaches. And I forget that other places might not be as, might not have that in well, the same way. You've definitely created a model that I think could be a nationwide model. Um, so thank you for that. Um, Joel, I don't know if you want to add anything to that. I, I really do. And first I wanted to say, Sharon, you didn't need to sing your own praises because I was about to. The <laughs> County Commission is such an incredible group of like talent and will and joy in the work. And I, like you, Commissioner Jayapal, like I just love you guys so much. And it's true. Like they, they work together and um, and build really long lasting effort um, in that. Um, it's, just, it's absolutely beautiful. I, I, you know, my role in this conversation is, is, is political. Um, and I would say that, that, I mean, first of all, everything Sharon said is, is far better than anything I'm going to say, but like, <laughs> but uniting groups in advance uh, in conversation, the county party is going to have a different uh, capability than those neighborhood groups or mutual aid groups and definitely find um, communities of color. Um, it is so easy to feel like you've done representation uh, and to hold up the mirror and realize that you haven't. And of course, we're a, we're a very uh, white city, so, so it is very easy for us mm. to forget to ask communities of color. Um, so definitely 
doing that. And then on the political level, like this is Trump trying to change a conversation. I'm just going to say it that way because that is what I believe is true. Yep. Yep. And so yep. you some some or all of the energy should be staying on the conversation that we're talking about, right? Racial justice, yes. getting it right finally. And then helping the community make minimize the impact of, of what he's doing, you know, to, to find ways to not react um, in the way that that creates negative news and and to to make this mission a failure for Trump uh, and Barr. I mean, this was such a fascinating conversation. I think just to close off, um, these are obviously difficult times um, in our country. We are facing a pandemic um, now with these federal troops coming into um, Portland and other cities. And I just want to ask you guys to wrap up this conversation. Um, what gives you both hope? Well, for, for me, um, it is hearing from so many people who care about these issues, who are intent upon making change and acting now, um, who go out night after night uh, to stand up for um, basic human rights. Uh, it, you know, hearing from people in Multnomah County fuels me to keep going even when I'm exhausted and I, I do get, it, it's exhausting. Like you said, there is so much going on right now, but it is that, that we're in it, the feeling that we're in it together. And I wanna use whatever I can do, whatever in my role, whatever, you know, air quotes here, you know, power um, that I have in my limited local elected official capacity to make a difference and we all are doing that. And so um, that's inspiring and that, that gives me hope. I, I am given hope by, by two things. First of all, following Sharon and Commissioner Marin and any of these is very difficult because she's, she's, she knows what she's talking about. But two things, and from a historical perspective, 30 days after George Floyd died, the Oregon legislature convened and in 48 hours passed legislation written by our POC caucus. Um, and, and it wasn't everything, but it was almost everything. It was incredible, the responsiveness of, of our political system to the will of the people in that moment. The city, I mean, uh, the county commissioners also took action. The city council took action. Once again, not perfect, but so responsive. And I, you know, I, I work inside of the system because I believe that that is how lasting change happens and I see it happen. And so that really does give me hope. It's also frustrating all the time, but <laughs> when we look at it from a historical perspective, 30 days later, we made structural change that will last, outlast all of our lives. Mm -hmm. um, and and that, that gives me hope too. Yeah. I think in large Talking part- Talking to you both yeah. has given me hope. Yeah. It's really been 
extraordinary conversation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think in large part, um, a quote that I um, love a lot is a quote by Abraham Lincoln. Um, I don't have a memory, but it essentially goes like, um, public sentiment is everything. Um, with it, we can do anything. Without it, we can do nothing. And I think really what we've been seeing in, you know, after the um, killing of George Floyd and other Black lives is, you know, public sentiment really coming together and um, demanding change. And I think that's really reflective of some of those policies that we began um, to see. But um, thank you so much, Sharon and Joel, for joining us today for this conversation. Um, I'm sure Jill and I um, have both really learned a lot hearing it from you know, your perspective as protesters on the ground um, in Portland. And um, I hope everyone else listening also um, can draw from um, the advice and kind of hear from the stories that they have offered today. So um, I, we hope that you listening enjoyed this episode and be sure to follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. And lastly, um, be sure to subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much and see you in our next episode.